Well, good morning. Our passage today is Romans 3, verses 1 through 20. If you wouldn't mind turning there and standing as we read God's holy and inspired word. We're privileged today to be possessing not only God's full word as he revealed it to his people, but also being able to worship here today freely with one another. Romans 3 says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying. Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for just both the richness of it, the depth, the simplicity, all of the things that we would expect from a word that reflects your goodness, your holiness, your justice, your righteousness, your grace, your mercy, so much more. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege to read it and to hide it in our hearts this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One well, his commentary on Romans, R. Kent Hughes notes that this section that we just read of chapter 3 reminds him of the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale of the emperor who loved clothes, very conscious of his appearance. But one day, some thieves offered to make him a magic garment that would make him invisible, or that was invisible, this garment, except to those who were wise and pure in heart. And of course, the garment was invisible because there was no garment. The thieves weren't going to make anything. And their major challenge was going to be to convince the emperor that they had actually made invisible clothing. And of course, also, the emperor was not going to be easily fooled, and so he sent his officials to verify that the thieves were actually making something. And when they arrived, 
they couldn't see any cloth on the looms, even though the looms were being operated, but they didn't want to be considered unwise or impure of heart, and so they came back and reported that, yes, the, the cloth is beautiful. The garment is going to be wonderful. The emperor himself eventually went to look at the clothing. He couldn't see anything on the looms, but should he say that he was impure of heart and unwise? No, he came back praising the thieves for their beautiful work and paid them extra. And so the day for a kingdom-wide parade came in which he was going to publicly display these beautiful clothes that the thieves had made, and they pretended to dress him and took their money and escaped from the town. And meanwhile, the emperor is marching through the town with no clothes on, right? While all the people, of course, who also don't want to be considered impure or unwise of heart, are praising his beautiful clothing. Finally, near the end of the parade, one little boy cries, the emperor has no clothes, in which suddenly everybody knew the truth. And the words of this innocent little boy, whom everyone knew to be pure of heart, reveals the hypocrisy of everyone in the town. You might say, why does Hughes apply this to chapter 3? It's because as we've been reading in chapter 2, the Israelites imagined themselves to be clothed with righteousness. To be clothed with the perfection of obeying God's word and being holy before him. But that actually was not true. And the leaders in particular were parading around Israel, speaking words of supposed wisdom and receiving the respect of everyone and believing themselves to be the guides and the leaders and lights and correctors and teachers, all clothed in a righteousness that did not exist, just like the emperor. But then, like the little boy of Hans Christian Andersen's story, Paul strips away their deception telling the people of Israel they have no clothes. Just because a person has God's word and is considered a part of the covenant community that is no guarantee of righteousness before God. And so Paul ends the previous chapter with the comment that would have been startling and offending to most Jewish readers. You can turn the page back if you need to or just look at Back a few verses in chapter 2, starting in verse 26. If a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, Paul was concluding, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The Gentiles, Paul says, who did not have the word of God and who were not circumcised, who were not of the people of God and that special nation set aside, many of them would judge many of the Jews. And that was a preposterous statement. And you can imagine someone reading those words, naturally asking the questions that we see here at the start of chapter 3. Well, if that is true, Paul, then what advantage has the Jew? Or 
What is the value of circumcision? If it's all about the internal heart, then why do it in the first place, right? It's a good question. What makes a Jewish person different than the Gentile? And what was all this stuff about in history about being a special people that were set apart as a peculiar people, uh, holy to God? And Paul's answer in verse 2 is helpful. He says the Jewish people were entrusted with the oracles of God. And that term oracles is fairly synonymous with the term scriptures. But it emphasizes the words of God, both his promises and his warnings. And throughout this morning, I want you to insert yourself into these verses. So here you would change the words to be, what advantage do I have being born into a Christian family and being a part of a Christian community? And the answer to you have been given the promises and the warnings of God. Why is this an advantage over someone who doesn't have these things? It's an advantage because even though the creation, as we saw in chapter 1, reveals the fact that God exists and is over all things, the creation cannot tell us anything else about God. It can't tell us about God's mercy or his righteousness or his holy requirements. It can't tell us about ourselves, particularly about our sin. But the word of God tells us those things. It tells us about God and ourselves in great detail as well as what God requires of us and how he will judge sin but save his people. And perhaps that makes sense. And then we get to verses 3 through 8 that for some are a little more confusing. Let's look at these. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? What's that mean? Well, think about the fact that God called Abraham, as we were reminding ourselves the last few weeks, God called Abraham out of Ur, sent him and his descendants apart as a special people and a nation. God said that he would be God to Abraham and to his children and grandchildren after him. But many, Paul here says some, we know from the Old Testament that it was most over time, Israelites were unfaithful and rebelled against God. The entire nation, even at one point, went into exile. And after time in Babylon, very few returned to Israel. And those who did were primarily of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. The remaining ten tribes, and even most of Judah and Benjamin, re remained dispersed throughout the world. Did that mean that God's promises were not true? Did Israel's faithlessness, their rebellion in essence, frustrate the faithfulness of God. That's what Paul's asking there. And what does he say? By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. That's speaking to the Lord. God is absolutely faithful. That's what Paul's saying. Even if every single man, woman, and child is a liar, still God is true to his own character. And Paul is reminding us that God's oracles were not just promises of blessing. They were also promises and warnings of judgment. And that's what the next verses bring out. Paul says that even our unrighteousness, even our rebellion proves 
the faithfulness of God because he does what he said he would do. He blesses those who love and obey him and he judges those who rebel against him. He has always been consistent is what Paul says. And Paul's question in verse five, shall we say that God is unrighteous to judge us is interesting and what he's doing here is anticipating that an Israelite reading his words will say, well, God set us apart. That exempts us from judgment. We agree that God should judge the unrighteous. We agree that there were warnings of judgment in, in the oracles and the scriptures, but we, we don't even get put into that category because we're children of Abraham. And of course, any person saying that would be someone who didn't know their history, right? They would know that God had judged Israel many times. He eventually exiled them to Assyria, Assyria and Babylon, and that's because God is not partial. He has the same standards for the Jew as for the Gentile, and that's what we learned in the last chapter. How else, as Paul says, could God fairly judge the world? And just so that Paul covers every possible objection, he even asks in verse 8, so why not just do evil so that God can be shown righteous in judging us? He says that's what some people were slanderously accusing him and the other apostles in teaching because they taught that God is shown to be even more gracious when he forgives the worst of sins. So doesn't that mean that we could sin even more and God would be shown to be more righteous and more gracious? In chapter 6, he will say God forbid that conclusion, but in that chapter, he's actually addressing Christians. Here in chapter 3, he's speaking to unbelieving Jews who are objecting to his words, and he simply says that such an objection is so foolish that the only response he can say is that God's condemnation of them is just. And that brings us to verses 9 through 20, which are the most detailed, clear statement of man's sin in the entire Bible. In verse 1, Paul started with asking, what advantage does the Jewish person have? And he tried to demonstrate that Israel had a great advantage In verse 9, he asks, are we Jews then any better off because of that advantage? Again, insert yourself into these verses. Am I, as a member of a Christian family, a part of a Christian community, a part of this church, better off because of this advantage? And your initial answer might be, yes. I have a foot up, in a sense, But Paul says no. And we have to understand why he says no. Because he's already said that we have much of an advantage, which is positive, but he doesn't say that we are better off. We need to understand the distinction. He says, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Right? Is there some good in us by virtue of being born into a Christian family and being part of a Christian community? 
Paul says, no. None is righteous. No, not one. We are all guilty. And the Israelite could perhaps admit that he sometimes put too much stock in circumcision and other things. But certainly everyone wasn't as bad as Paul's describing. Were they? And Paul's answer is, I'm afraid they are, because verse 10 says, none is righteous. And if we've been paying attention up until now in chapters 1 and 2, the statement is strongly implied. But notice the absolute nature of the statement. There is not one single person righteous. It doesn't matter what advantages you have. Unless someone might say, what about me? Paul adds further emphasis, not one. Not one. And that's an amazing statement if you think about all the nice people that you know. Right? They may not be Christians, but they seem like nice people. They're good neighbors. They're kind. They're gracious people. God, looking at them, says there's not one among them that is righteous, not even one. In fact, the depravity of the human heart is revealed by the fact that when we read this kind of statement, we are tempted to mentally add, except me. Right? And yet Paul doesn't speak in ambiguity or generalities. He uses these absolute statements. There is none righteous, not one person. If he wanted to be vague, he could have said some. He could have said most. And Paul is actually quoting the Old Testament, specifically Psalm 14. So he isn't the first person that said these words. David said the same. And he says, no one understands Put yourself in those words. I don't understand. As an unbelieving person, I didn't understand about God. And we say, now wait a second. If Paul is saying that of all, of all people, is he really saying that all the bright and creative and sophisticated thinkers of our world, the people at the Harvards and the Cambridges and the Stanfords that are writing their doctoral dissertations, the brilliant scientists hypothesizing about dark matter and antimatter and subatomic particles, none of them understand? That's right. In fact, Paul says that no one seeks after God. And then we say, well, we know that has to be wrong. Because there are all kinds of religious people going to temples, going through various procedures, observing rituals, Hundreds of thousands of people flocking to churches, filling up worship areas all over the world. What are they looking for? Aren't they searching for God? Well, that would be the easy but unfortunately incorrect answer. For God says through Paul, they're not searching for me. They don't seek me. Then what are they looking for? Something else. Something to tell them that what they are doing, which is a self-centered rebellion against the true God, is okay. They're looking for someone to tell them that their obsession with money or work or pleasure or self or family, anger, pride, whatever it is, that it's all okay as long as they have something good in their lives like performing a ritual or owning a Bible or even going to church. They aren't looking for the God of truth and justice who will reveal their sin and will require them to repent and start walking the narrow road of self-denial. 
And so when Paul concludes that section by saying, all have turned aside and have become worthless, no one does good, not even one, perhaps at least if we accept the absolute statements, we aren't surprised by that conclusion. Understand, though, what Paul isn't saying. He is not saying that people never perform good deeds. After all, there are good deeds done every day. People give to charities. Men give up their lives for their country. Women devote themselves to nurturing their children. Those are all good deeds. So what Paul must be saying is that if these people are not believers, then the motive of their heart behind these deeds is not good. It's always unprofitable. And thus, in the big picture, not one of them does good. Because they are always doing what they do for selfish purposes. Nothing is done for the glory of God. And in, Paul, in God's math, a thousand good deeds done for the wrong reasons and one's own glory amounts to nothing. Is every deed done by a non-Christian done for the wrong reason? What should the answer be by now? Yes. Every good deed done by a non-Christian is done for the wrong reason. But I didn't say that. Paul said that. David said that. God said that. He even said it in Genesis 6 when he stated that the heart of fallen man is incredibly wicked and every thought is evil all the time. And I appreciate the work of Jonathan Edwards that he once did in, in Romans chapter 3. He was one of the first people in the history of the church to try to thoroughly define what the human will is. And he asked, what is the will? And his answer was, well, when, when we make a decision about something, we are exercising our will. We are making a choice. And imagine, children, that you have to choose between two alternatives, reading a book or playing outside. Which one would you choose? Well, Jonathan Edwards said, you would choose the thing that you desired the most. And it's true that you might think through your choice for a minute. Because you're the reasons that you use to make your choice might be linked to some other things. Perhaps you remember that your mom said that you needed to finish your reading and you want to be obedient. Or perhaps you desire not to be disciplined. Or perhaps you enjoy the book you're reading or you simply want to make your mom happy and so you choose to read your book rather than go play outside. There are many different motivations but you ultimately choose what it is that you most want to do. It may be that you feel that you need to make the choice that you make. It may be that you want choice that you make, even if you would like, in some ways, you like the other choice. But ultimately, you choose the one that you want the most. That's what Jonathan Edwards said. And when we talk about what we want, what we desire, we're talking about the heart. And Paul says in Romans 3 that it is the nature of the lost and sinful person that he or she never desires God. And so if you don't desire God, 
you won't choose him or his ways. And it's as easy as that. Sin will always present you with the more desirable choice. So does that mean that an unbelieving person has a free will? Well, Edwards argues that every person makes choices and can make choices, and that, in essence, is what it means to have a free will. But listen closely. The problem isn't the choosing, it's the wanting. A lost person will, can choose to admit God's sovereignty, can choose to submit to God, can choose to prioritize God's moral standards over his own, but he won't, he never will. Never, ever. Remember Paul's statements, they're absolute, he won't. There won't be a single time out of a million where the lost person wants something else. His actions will always be unprofitable because his choices, his desires will always be unprofitable. And his choices will always be unprofitable because his desires are self-centered and his desires will always be self-centered because he is spiritually dead and captive to a sinful nature that has hardened his heart and makes him want to always choose for his own glory against God's. And there is only one remedy to that hardened heart in bondage to sin, and that is the two-edged sword of the Holy Spirit, which is the Word of God. God has not robbed us of our free wills, but if it weren't for God, we would never choose Him. If we get hung up thinking that God has taken away our free will, then we will miss the point. When we get to the later chapters of Romans, we'll see the frustration of Paul with people who mistakenly conclude that very thing. And we need to understand that in our lost condition, we will never want to choose God. If we don't understand that, we won't fully understand when we get to chapters like chapter 9 and others. The Holy Spirit must intervene in my life. He must regenerate my heart in order to make me want God. And by his mercy, the Holy Spirit did that very thing. And once God does regenerate the heart, he gives us a desire for him, and thus begins the struggle of the Christian life. Because now we have two conflicting desires Before we had only one desire, our own glory, which was really the desire of the flesh, but now thanks to God's saving work, we have two desires. Still the flesh, but now the spirit, which is the desire for God's glory. And we have other chapters, other books to deal with that. But let's return to chapter 3. By the time we get down to verse 19, Paul has greatly offended every person that has ever lived. Paul couldn't say anything else insulting, could he? Well, don't bet on it. In verse 19, Paul says that the verses that we've studied already, verses full of quotations from the books of Isaiah and the Psalms, were meant for those that are under the law. Why? So that every mouth would be stopped. The whole world held accountable to God. In other words, and please listen to this, no person has a chance. As verse 20 reads, by the works of the law, 
no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now Paul has spent three chapters leading up to this one sentence. And that word for in the ESV, some of your translations have the word therefore, means that this is a conclusion to what has come before this. There's been one long preparation for this final sentence. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You might call this one of the grand themes of the book of Romans. And he'll develop this concept later in chapter 6 through 8, but let me introduce you to this important truth. God did not expect Israel to keep the law. He didn't. No, he knew that Israel could not. But God is holy, and he was obligated to set the standards for man at the level of what? What do we say in earlier weeks? Perfection. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Do everything that I have given you. But God knew that the state of the human heart after Adam and evil, Adam and evil, <laughs> God knew the state of the heart after Adam and Eve fell. And even as God gave tablets of law to Moses on Mount Sinai before Moses and Joshua ever came down from the mountain, Israel was already breaking every commandment. So he didn't expect them to uphold that standard. Rather, he intended that the law would reveal the sinfulness of man and condemn him. The purpose of the law was to drive people to Christ by making them realize that they need a Savior. That is why Paul says here that through law comes knowledge of sin. Through law comes the realization that we are hopeless, without a chance, that no one is justified by the works because of the law, because we don't live up to the standard and we don't, outside of the intervention of the Holy Spirit, ever do things with the right motivation and with the right desires. And I hope as we studied Romans 3 this morning that you have not been saying this doesn't apply to me. Instead, I hope you've been saying this describes and includes me because that's what God's word is intended to do. It's intended to reveal our sin. It strips away the emperor's clothing of self-deceit. It displays our nakedness. And the world may tell us, you're, do, you know, you're doing fine. Your clothes are beautiful. Don't let anyone else tell you that they aren't beautiful. But God's standards reveal your true wretchedness. And thankfully, the law was not designed to leave you there. Isaiah, when he realized the truth of of what Paul says in Romans, that man is corrupt before a holy God, felt great fear and shame and humility, he cries out, I am undone. But then God says, that's exactly what you need to understand. I have revealed your sinfulness, yes, but I did so in order that I might cleanse you. And then God takes a burning coal 
and places it upon Isaiah's lips, which is a symbol of God's forgiveness and cleansing. And we need to be like Isaiah. Having heard what Paul says in these three chapters and really what we read in the rest of the word of God, we need to feel unsteady as the foundation of our self-reliance gets ripped out from under our feet. The realization of the magnificent holiness of God compared to the, the great depravity of our own hearts sinks in and we cry out like in Isaiah, I am undone. But then we don't stop there because the good news is that just as God applied a hot coal to Isaiah's lips, so Jesus Christ died on the cross for us and offers us forgiveness and healing. That's why Jesus had John write these words in Revelation 3.17, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Romans 3. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. There's only one person who met the standards of the law, and that was Jesus Christ. And the Father accepted his sinless atonement on our behalf, or at least on the behalf of those whom God would redeem, and that's the good news of Romans that we are reading so far and about to read in the chapters to come. If you've heard what I've said this morning and realize that you are included in Paul's words in these first three chapters, then that's a strong statement, then you are likely one of those people whom God has redeemed if the realization of your sin breaks your heart and causes you to turn to God, then you are one of the people whom God has redeemed. Blessed are they, Jesus said in Matthew 5, who are broken in spirit over their sin, for they shall see the kingdom of God. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. So we are wretched, pitiful, blind, naked. The emperor didn't have clothes. Neither do we. And we can either acknowledge that fact and throw ourselves upon God's mercy, or we will have the truth painfully brought home one day before God's judgment seat because no one will be justified by their works before God. And so what do we say? We say, I choose to stand naked and guilty before the cross of Christ and cling to him. I choose to stand there. And the Bible tells me that he takes that, he clothes me, he comforts me, he gives me a new name, he gives me an inheritance, he gives me a place with him forever. He says, come stand before my throne, I go to prepare a place for you. But it has to start with the recognition, we have no clothes. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare to come to the table and recognize what you did for us, I pray that we would have the kind of response that I believe Paul expected in these, after these first words to the church at Rome. I believe that he 
was speaking, yes, against objections that he might hear, but Lord, knowing what we are about to read in the chapters to, to come, I believe he also wanted to drive us to this recognition of our sin so that we would be comforted and excited and relieved to hear what Jesus did for us. How we died in Christ. How Christ is the new Adam. How he is our new head and and spiritual savior. How he called us out of sin. So many wonderful things yet to come. But Lord, we have to start here. And I pray that all of us here this morning would, would realize that there is nothing good in us that merits the salvation that you give. If we want to rely upon works, then I'm afraid that we will fall under that final conclusion that no one will be justified by works on that day. We'll only be justified by being clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen.